you have your copy of the scriptures, go ahead and turn to Leviticus 16 once again. We won't be in Leviticus 16 long, but I do want us to begin there. And then we will be making our way to the book of Hebrews. So the background for the sermon this evening is the morning sermon. What we talked about this morning, as I alluded to there, my goal for our time together this evening is to make some specific application in light of what happened at the Day of Atonement, year after year after year, and the reasons that the Scriptures give for that Day of Atonement. And as I indicated this morning, the primary application out of that sacrificial ritual that took place every year, or was supposed to take place, Every year, the primary application out of that is what the writer of the Hebrews says in the scripture passage that we read earlier. And that is that Christ is supremely greater than the sacrifices that were offered, that Christ is supremely greater than the priest who offered those sacrifices, that Christ is supremely greater because the cleansing that he provides penetrates deeper and is more complete than the external cleansing that the sacrificial system provided. Christ is greater because the redemption that he secures is not a temporary redemption, but is an eternal redemption. And so when we look at the acts of purification that took place, the acts of atonement that took place on the day of atonement, first and foremost, we must see the supremacy of Christ above all that happened on that day, above all that took place every time a sacrifice was offered on behalf of the Israelites. But the New Testament makes plain that there are more applications for us underneath recognizing the supremacy of Christ. So first, we must confess Christ. We must recognize our need for Him and come to Him by faith first. But trusting in Christ for our eternal salvation, recognizing Christ as our only hope in this life and in the life to come, what else can we learn from the Day of Atonement? How else should we respond to the practices of the Day of Atonement. First, we must continually confess and repent of our sin. Confess and repent, for these are indispensable to forgiveness. We went through this morning all of those sacrifices and the application of the blood and the putting on the hands on the head of the goat and saying the prayer over the goat and sending the goat out and offering more offerings and bathing and burning the flesh. All of those were necessary. But the Lord did not end His command to the people there. 
He did not merely say, the priest will do this on your behalf and all is well until next year. But he told them, you have a responsibility on this day. It is a special Sabbath for you. It is a day to be a day of affliction for you. It is to be a day for you to remember your sin, a day for you to recognize your sin, a day for you to confess your sin, a day for you to commit to turning away from your sin, a day of denying yourself pleasures in this life so that you might focus on your desperate need for rescue. And so it is for us that we must continually examine our own hearts, praying that the Lord will show us if there be any wicked way in us and confessing our sin, knowing that if we confess our sin, he is faithful and he is just to forgive us our sin, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The Day of Atonement reminds us that a part of the ongoing Christian life is self-examination leading to confession and repentance of our sin. For these are indispensable to forgiveness. Secondly, we need to recognize that no sin is entirely private. No sin is entirely private. All sin has some measure of public consequence. We see this in the Day of Atonement in this way. The commands that God gives to Moses... He tells them that purification must be made because of the uncleanness, because of the sin, because of the transgressions, because of the impurities of the people. But it wasn't just that the people needed to be purified. It wasn't just the people sinned and so they needed purification. But the very place where God that God had given to them in which he was to dwell needed to be purified because their sin had polluted the environment. What this reminds us is no matter how private your sin may seem, it has public consequences. Those may be direct, they may be indirect, but no sin is private. Most fundamentally, no sin is private because you live your life before an omniscient, omnipresent God who knows you even better than you know yourself. This is both this can be both a word of caution and a word of comfort it's a word of comfort because the lord knows what you need far better than you do but it's also a word of warning because the lord knows your sinful heart the lord knows my sinful heart better than 
I do better than you do. And so your sin is never private because God always sees. He always knows. But even beyond that, your sin is never fully private because your sin affects your heart. Your sin affects how you think, which in turn leads to effect on how you interact with others. So even though you may be in a room with the door closed and it's just you and the computer, it doesn't stay there. Because it gets in here. And it gets in here. And it affects this. It affects how we respond to the Lord. It affects how we respond to others. The covetousness that is in our hearts. Paul said that it was that command, right? That in one way brought him to his knees, if you will. Because the law said, thou shalt not covet. You don't know what I'm coveting. I don't know what you're coveting. But whatever it is that you are coveting, that's going to affect how you perceive and how you interact with those who have what you wish you had. They have what you wish was yours. And so you're going to respond to them in a certain way, perhaps with bitterness, perhaps in jealousy, perhaps in anger. Your sin is never entirely private. Thirdly, when temptation to sin comes, remember your great high priest. When temptation to sin comes, remember your great high priest. Turn over. I don't think we actually even read out of Leviticus 16, did we? We turned there, but we referenced it. So let's go over to Hebrews. Go to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 through 18. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. That is, that the high priest might offer an atoning sacrifice, might make atonement for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. The writer of the Hebrews is telling his readers... When you are tempted to sin, remember 
You have a great high priest. You have a great high priest who has offered a perfect sacrifice. You have a great high priest who himself was tempted in every way. As you are. And was without sin. He is able to help those who are being tempted. This one who has made an atoning sacrifice for us. Husbands can sympathize with their wives. Or maybe not sympathize. But husbands try and provide comfort and encouragement when their wives are in the process of childbearing. But husbands can't sympathize with their wives in that process as ones who have gone through that process. There's just a distance. That distance does not come into play when we talk about the help, the compassion, the sympathy that Christ is able to provide. Because He has been there. Sure, the particular instance may be different. No internet and no cars and no road rage for Jesus, right? But tempted in every way in the heart, yet without sin. C.S. Lewis puts it this way in terms of Christ being able to help us and understand our temptation beyond that which we even understand. No man knows how bad he is till he has tried very hard to be good. A silly idea is current that good people do not know what temptation means. This is an obvious lie. Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. After all, you find out the strength of the German army by fighting against it, not by giving in. You find out the strength of a wind by trying to walk against it, not by lying down. A man who gives in to temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like an hour later. That is why bad people, in one sense, know very little about badness. They have lived a sheltered life, always giving in. We never find out the strength of the evil impulse inside us until we try to fight it. And Christ, because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation, is also the only man who knows to the full what temptation means. He is the only complete realist. So, the writer of the Hebrews tells his reader, when you are tempted to sin... When you are tempted to unrighteous anger. When you are tempted to fits of rage. When you are tempted to jealousy. When you are tempted to covetousness. When you are tempted to lust. He doesn't give them a 12 step plan. Right? Practical steps are helpful. And... We, we need to encourage one another in those. But there is no help in 
follow these three steps. Like the help of remember your great high priest. Remember that he has given himself for you. And so, moving to Hebrews 4, verses 14 through 16. We hear a very similar encouragement. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who is in, who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. Again, our high priest in the presence of the Father, compelling us to draw near to the throne where grace and mercy are found. Seeking help when we are tempted to give in to sin. Hebrews seven twenty five and 28 through 28. Again, Jesus as the great high priest who has made atonement for us. Again, picture. When we go to the throne of grace seeking help in our time of temptation, what do we find? This is what we find. Consequently, the Lord Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him, since He always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted high above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weaknesses as high priests, but the word of the oath which came later than the law appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. We have a high priest who has been made perfect, who lives to intercede For those he has promised to help in their time of need. So when we go to the Lord seeking help in our hour of temptation, remembering our great high priests, our great high priest, excuse me, we see there Jesus making intercession for us. Kent Hughes in his Commentary on Hebrews says this about Jesus' intercession. Jesus' contact with the Father is unbroken. Remember, that high priest could only go into that Holy of Holies just for a moment to offer those sin offerings, the blood of those sin offerings that he needed to offer. But Jesus is in the presence of the Father forever making intercession for us. Jesus' contact with the Father is unbroken. His intercession is never ending. Day by day, hour by hour, year by year, millennium by millennium, Christ prays for us. How does He intercede for us? He, along with the Holy Spirit, takes our feeble prayers, cleans them up, ennobles them, and presents them to the Father. Chrysostom, the great 4th century preacher, provides a helpful analogy. A young boy whose father was, on, was away on a trip wanted to present his father with something that would please him. His mother sent him to the garden to gather a bouquet of flowers. 
the little boy gathered a sorry bouquet of weeds as well as a few flowers. But when his father returned home, he was presented with a beautifully arranged bouquet, for the mother had intervened, removing all the weeds. The prayers of the church, prevailing, acceptable, and fruitful as they are, are not a thing of beauty as they leave the lips of the saints. As they start their way heavenward, they are a mixed bag of weeds with a few stray flowers. When they arrive, however, thanks to the intercession of Christ, our great high priest, they are nothing but beautiful flowers. In your time of weakness, the willingness of the Father to provide help is not dependent upon the eloquence or the exactness of your prayer. The willingness of the Father to provide help to you by His Spirit is solely on the basis of His perfect Son who lives to intercede for you. So in your hour of temptation, remember your great High Priest. But when you succumb to temptation, as we all will, remember that you have an atoning sacrifice. For Jesus is not only our great High Priest, But He is our propitiating sacrifice. He is the one who has made atonement for us. The Apostle John puts it this way. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation, the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. We should also encourage one another in holy living. This was the conclusion of our scripture reading earlier. After examining Christ's high priestly work, the writer of the Hebrews concludes that section by saying, In light of these things, let us then seek to stir one another up. To love and good deeds. Because Christ has given Himself for us to live lives pursuing holiness. We should encourage one another in lives pursuing holiness. Finally, because Christ has accomplished our atonement once for all in the giving of Himself, we should be willing to suffer ridicule. We should be willing to suffer ridicule. Turn over to Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews chapter 13 beginning in verse 11. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest, there's the day of atonement again, as a sacrifice for sin, are burned outside the camp. Remember those sin offerings after the burnt offerings had been burned on the altar, the carcasses were gathered and taken outside the camp and burned. Here, the writer is reminding the people of that. As a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp, so Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. 
For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Two reasons he gives here for being willing to suffer reproach, ridicule. As the people of Christ. One, because Christ suffered outside of the gate and was ridiculed, was reviled as he hung and died in your place and in my place. Therefore, we too should be willing to be ridiculed when necessary, because that is what he has done for us. But also, we should be willing to be ridiculed in this life because this earth is not our home. We are but a pilgrim people. A pilgrim people awaiting entry into the promised land. Atonement having been provided for. The promise laying before us. So we too in this life should be willing to be thought foolish. Because we think that one whom others say was just a good teacher, very religious man, was crucified outside of a gate, outside of the city. And we believe that he was more than a good man, more than a religious teacher. Yes, he suffered outside of the city, but he did not merely suffer. He suffered to provide atonement for you and for me. And then the Father, declaring His sacrifice to be accepted, raised Him from the dead, declaring Him to be His Son in power. And we await. We await the return of our great High Priest. As the writer of the Hebrews said earlier from our Scripture reading, Chapter 10. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Again from this morning, reflect on the glories of Christ against the backdrop of the great day of atonement. Make time for yourself or with your family to consider That what has been done for you by your sacrifice and your great high priest. What is being done for you by your interceding priest. And what will be done for you when your priest exits that heavenly dwelling. Not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Take time this week. Take time this Friday to remember our great high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, our hope is built on nothing less than what Jesus has done in the giving of himself for us. Father, help us to remember in our time of temptation that we have a great high priest who has promised to provide help 
we have an atoning sacrifice when we succumb to that temptation. Help us to remember the importance and to practice ongoing examination and confession and repentance. Father, help us to remember that no sin is unimportant. That no sin is entirely private. But that every sin affects not only us and our relationship with you, but also affects how we interact with others. So, Father, may we be those who take sin seriously, but may we also be those who rejoice that we have a priest and a sacrifice who has given himself for that very sin. In his name we pray. Amen.